Hello and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast, where we're all about creating better, more knowledgeable HVAC and building performance technicians by helping the two professions better understand each other, the work they're working on, and with the ultimate goal of making customers happy in the homes they live in and the buildings they work in. I talk a lot about HVAC, and this episode is no exception. In this episode, Eric introduces Ralph Wolf. And we get to have this great conversation with Ralph. He's a respected figure in the HVAC industry. He's known for his internet presence. You'll find him out there and his contributions in the field. He'll discuss his journey. And he also talks about the impact social media has had on his career and his current role in education. Now, he works for Ferguson right now. He's got a little bit less online activity than before, but his influence remains strong. And that's reflected in his interactions with students who recognize and appreciate his teachings. We get into his career trajectory. That's a hard word to pronounce today. Where he highlights starting in the Navy, where he was introduced to sheet metal work sort of at random, which set the foundation for his future in HVAC. His post-Navy experience involved navigating various roles from sheet metal installer to HVAC service technician, and also he's able to showcase his adaptability, take on challenges, and use continuous learning. Ralph shares his insights in the challenges and rewards of starting an HVAC business, underscoring the importance of realistic expectations and dedication. Then near the end of the podcast, we shift to technical aspects of HVAC, where Ralph stresses the need to adapt and adhere to best practices while navigating these shifts, like refrigerant transition and others that are coming. He advocates for continuous learning. Yay, Ralph, we love that. Proper tool usage. Yay, we love that at TrueTech. And he notes the common reluctance amongst technicians to investigate just your real basic diagnostic tools like manometers. Ralph concludes with some humorous anecdotes from his fieldwork and his candid thoughts on personal and professional growth in the HVAC industry. You can always count on Ralph to be candid and humorous. So let's dig into this episode of Ralph Wolf's HVAC Odyssey, Lessons, Laughs, and Legacies. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Building HVAC Science Podcast. I am Eric Kaiser. With me today, co-host Bill Spone, and our special guest, Mr. Ralph Wolf, the one and only. Welcome, Ralph. Man, I appreciate that. You give me more credit than I deserve, I promise you. There is only one of you. That is true. But you're semi-internet famous, aren't you? Yeah, and I walked away from it, as those old washed-up actors would say. <laughs> yeah, but you walked away into many other things and helping out many people in the trade and improving the trade as we all do in our own way. So really, I mean, that's what we want to talk about here today is your path in the trade and some of the things you've learned along the way and maybe share some of that with the listeners and help them along. Hey, I'm all for it. You mentioned that if it wouldn't have been for all the internet stuff, social media stuff, it took me a lot of places I didn't realize I could go. And it's funny because I hadn't really been active on social media in almost six years since I've been with Ferguson. I'm talking about YouTube stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you've been away from it for a little while. I still have guys coming in class and like, I know you. Or I saw your name on the flyer and I was like, I wonder if that's him. And then what's really cool is I'm sitting there and I'm teaching stuff in class and I can watch a guy in the room and he's shaking his head. He's shaking his head where he's agreeing with me. And I'm like, that guy right there 
he listens to people like Brian Orr, Jim Bergman, because a lot of stuff I say, we all share the same ideas, and I pass that stuff off in class, and I can see them shaking their head in the grants, and I'm like, hey, man, that's a great pat on the back for everybody involved. For sure. I think they're probably listeners that don't know you. Give us a recap. And actually, like we talked before we started recording here, there was a post you made around Veterans Day about your service in the Navy. And it was like a really thoughtful overview of how that influences a person's life. If you don't mind starting off there. So back in the 80s, late 80s, I joined the Navy because the place I lived, there was just basically minimum wage jobs. And a kid out of school, it's like, well, what I do with the rest of my life for in an area that there's no real job hopes, I guess you would say. So the girl I was dating at the time, her mom taught me into joining the Navy. Probably to get away from the daughter is probably what it was. But it was probably the best advice I'd ever been given. Because when I went to that ship, I got assigned to the sheet metal shop. And that led me to the path where I am today. So it's been an interesting road in the last 30 years. What's a contrast the sheet metal shop on a Navy ship to that on the good firm Earth? Oh, and to the trade? That gave me all the basics I needed to go out. So I tell you what happened is when, after I got out of the Navy, I answered adding the paper for a sheet metal installer. I was like, well, I did sheet metal in, in the Navy. So I went to the interview and it turned out to be a commercial heat and air company doing duck work. I had no experience, none whatsoever. I didn't even know how to work a thermostat because I left the house. I never controlled it there. Get to the ship. There's no way to control a thermostat. So I answered the ad and I'm like, I don't know anything about heating and air. So when I left that interview, I had to set of keys to a van, a set of drawings and said, be at this location Monday morning. And this was like Thursday. I had just got a name. I didn't have a tool one. Well, I didn't know what a pair of snips was because we used, I was familiar with those. So I walked in this job and it was me and the owner's brother who had no idea what he was doing. So we had to do this job. So what it was, was the company I worked for, it was a company that came in and did tenant build outs. So when one business left a space, another one come in, they redesigned the office and we had to do all the duct work doing fire dampers and transitions and stuff like that. I had no idea what I was doing. So what I did is I looked up in the air and I saw how the other guys did it or how it was already done. And that's actually how I learned how to do the job. Nothing like repeating what's already been messed up (laughs) (laughs) or done right the first time. Yeah, but I had the eye to see it. I was able to follow the plans because I learned how to do that in the Navy. So I just followed what was on the plans. And I worked with a really good filled sheet metal guy. And the videos I have on YouTube, I have a whole playlist on how to do filled sheet metal. It was from that job where I learned how to do that. Real quick, where can people find that playlist if they want to go watch it? That's on my old YouTube channels, TNN Services. TNN Services. All right. There you go. We'll grab a link on that. Yeah. Now you're doing sheet metal in the field. That's not an easy thing to do, doing sheet metal in the field sometimes, especially if you have to fabricate it out there. It's a lot easier in a shop where you have all the stuff and maybe some heat or something like that. So how long did you do that for? I did that for a couple of years and I actually left and 
went to Texas and I came back and I went to work for that company again for a short amount of time. And then I found another ad in the paper where they wanted an installer who wanted to cross over to service. So I applied and I got the job. And that guy, he really was looking for an installer because he wanted somebody he could train to do service. So he pulled me off the side to the side one day and he said, would you be interested in going to school? I said, yeah, sure. He paid for everything that the GI Bill didn't cover. So I used the GI Bill for to cover most of the school. So that was two years of working all day, going in at four o'clock in the evening, and going to school till 10 o'clock at night for two years. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Makes for long days. And I had small kids at the time. Yeah, that's hard to do with small kids. Yeah, there was a lot of time away from the house, but it's all paid off in the end, I guess. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Was it worth it in the end? Yeah. Looking back on it, all those 140-degree addicts, those 16-hour days, seven days a week, there are some times I look back and I'm like, man, maybe I shouldn't have worked so much. Maybe I should have spent some more time during the summers, which hard to do in this trade, especially when you live in Georgia where it's 80% humidity when 90-something degrees and there's more work than you can possibly get done. Yeah, I mean, at that point, it's you modify the old make hay when the sun shines to make air conditioning when the sun shines. There you go. But somebody had to do it. Might as well have been you. Yeah. So going back to the time when you started to do service work, and this is something I remember from talking to Jim Bergman's dad, who's passed away, but it was like once he discovered some new methods, new approaches, he wanted to go back and fix everything he'd done before. Did you ever have that kind of reaction? It happens today. I can be laying in bed or just doing nothing, and I can think of a job. And I had this discussion in class the other day, because even though I teach a mini-split class, I still try to throw in comparisons to conventional to mini-splits, so they can understand that it's a mini-split, but at the end of the day, it is still an air conditioner. It just works a little differently, but at the end of the day, it's still an air conditioner. So One of the biggest things that guys still aren't doing today is checking static pressure. And so while I'm in class, I'm like, hey, it's extremely important that you check static. Get your manometer out before you go get your gauges off the truck. Let's check airflow because without checking it, you won't ever know what your pressures are supposed to be. And I tell them, I say, if you start checking static pressure, you will actually look back on a job you did five years ago that you was having problems with. And you'll be like, damn, that was airflow that whole time. So to answer your question, yeah, I still look back and I'm like, damn, that job I did 20 years ago that I still remember, that was probably airflow related. So you mentioned teaching today. What are you doing and how long you've been doing it? So I teach the Mitsubishi M&P class, the two-day class. I teach out of Charlotte, Asheville, and Union City, Georgia. So I've been doing that probably almost six years. That's quite a while that you've been out of the YouTube game now, because that's where I first got to know you from is from YouTube and podcasts and things like that. And you said six years today, and that just, it's been quite a while. It has. Actually, February 1st will be six years. So it's right there on it. And I would probably still be making content today, but I just don't have the content to create. I'm not visiting job sites anymore. And of course, I can't do it in the Ferguson training room, but I wish I could. Because there's all that equipment that's in that room. I could just take that equipment and start doing breaks on it. And that'd be awesome. But I just can't do it. 
something hit me there while you were talking about transitioning from being more of an installer and sheet metal person into service and going to that school. What challenges did you come across with that? Because there's a lot of people out there that ask that question. What does it take to make that jump? And what challenges are they going to face making that jump if they decide they want to do it? I was pretty fortunate. I was a quick learner, first and foremost, but I worked for a great company. It was a small company, and we did both install and service. As an employee there, you might be installing a coil today. You might be doing five or six service calls. You might do a condenser and coil change the next day. So the guys I worked with were really great. And actually, I'm still friends, probably one of my closest friends today. I'm still friends with them. And we talk all the time. So I was fortunate enough to have really good guys that worked around that, that if I had a question, like when I was going to school, if I had a question that was taught in the class, I could go back and ask them if I didn't understand. Or if I would experience something in the field that I didn't ask or didn't understand, I could go back to the classroom and ask the teacher about it. So I had the best of both worlds. That's a really great way to do it because then, yeah, just like you said, you get the best of both worlds and you get to apply what you learn immediately and then go back and if you can't apply something, you get to learn it again. Right. I look back on it and then after I got out of school and for a couple of years later, I was like, I really didn't need to go to school. I learned just much in the field. But now teaching now, I'm like, that was a mistake for me to even think that because I know what I'm teaching now, I can look out in the class and I could see their eyes open wide, and I could see the light bulb going off in their head. And sometimes a little smoke comes out of their ears. I'm like, I wish I would have known that three weeks ago. Going to school, there's some validity to that. Especially if you've been out in the field, I find sometimes I get more out of something after I've experienced it and learned the finer points. But I also look back at that and I think, man, I could have done a lot better job for that customer had I gone to school and learned that in the first place. Right. And it helps if the instructor who's actually teaching, because let's face it, we have really good instructors and we have some instructors that maybe should be sitting in the seats themselves. And I hate to sound like that, but if the instructor is teaching the class, like I listen to y'all's podcasts, the one where Ty was on, man, I wish all of us were like him. That guy, he's got a way about him and I wish all the instructors were like him. On that note, just from your own personal point of view, what are the characteristics of a good instructor? Somebody that can take a guy that comes in class and thinks he knows everything and make him be quiet. I've had guys come in class. I've been in the field for 29 years, and I've got every certification known to man. And then by the time he leaves that class, he's scratching his head. What did I just learn? And they come up and shake your hand and, hey, this has been one of the best classes I've ever taken. That's a good class when that happens afterwards, for sure. And it's a challenge to do that sometimes because a lot of people, and we go into classes and we think, hey, I've done this. We know everything and we're not going to learn anything in this class, but my boss is making me sit here through this. I try to, because I always ask them, how many of you guys are here because you want to be here? How many of you guys are here because your boss told you to be here? And then the guys that, of course, raise their hand, most of them raise their hand because they want to be there. One reason I want to be in like a mini split class is because they just don't know enough about the equipment they're working on. So they want all the information they can get out of it. Are you seeing a change in the nature of people that come to your class? 
either their background or their interest, their engagement? Yeah, even as we get older, the guys coming into the class get younger, which is actually a benefit because they hadn't picked up the bad habits. So the guys I like to see come in class are the guys that tell me, I've been in the field for a whole week. And I have had those guys. And do you know those guys do better in class when it comes time for hands-on than the guys that have been in the field for 30 years? Because they don't have the bad habits and it's a clean slate. Yeah, they don't have the preconceived notions. That makes a lot of sense. Right. So I had a guy in class one time and he was just in the field for just a month. And he took notes. I mean, he took a lot of notes. So when it was time for me to break the equipment and the guys come back in and work on it, that guy led the group that he was in because he didn't know anything else other than what he was just taught. That's an interesting insight right there. So I'm curious, you transitioned into a service person, but then at some point in your career, you went from being a service person to a business owner and now working at a distributor doing training. What did that transition look like for you and why did you make those steps or how did you make those steps? I will tell you this, leaving the field, going into the heating and air business is one of the easiest things that somebody can actually do in the beginning because they have these all grand ideas of I'm going to go out there. I can make more money than what I'm making now. I see my owner. He's doing all this stuff. He's driving this Corvette. He's got this boat. He's got this RV. You see that, but what you don't see is how much he's, maybe he's in debt and you don't see that stuff, depending on which company he's working for. So they think they can make all this money. So they go out into the field in their truck because all I have to do is have a truck and a few hand tools. They're there to throw the stuff in from the road. So I say stuff like that, but I don't really mean it like that. But I just want to clear that up. I'm not saying that everybody that leaves a company and has a truck a single truck with some tools or just throwing it in from the road. I don't mean that. So they get these grand ideas. I'm going to go start this company and I'm going to make all this money because it is easy to do. So you leave that business, that company you work for, you go out into a truck, then you're working those 16 hour days. And then a guy like me, I didn't want to grow. I didn't want to have to keep track of all these different employees. I just wanted to do my own thing and Basically, not grow the company, just work within the company and not grow the company. That was just what made me happy. And then I was hoping that my kids would want to get into the trade. And they did. They worked with me during the summers. But then they said, we don't want to do this. So I don't want to grow. I don't want to grow. My kids don't want to have anything to do with it. And so I'm just going to go find something else I can enjoy doing. I want to go find somewhere else where I can actually still do what I'm doing without physically picking up a screwdriver to do it. That's pretty much how I transitioned out. And it was pretty easy decisions in every way, from leaving a company to working for myself and then leaving that company to coming to the distributor and being a TSA. Yeah. So what do you find that you like and don't like about being a TSA? I've done that job before, and it can be a challenging job, but I always like to hear what other people find challenging about that job, too. Sometimes a lot of guys would say, oh, it's the phone calls from the guys that should have went to training, and they should already know this, but they don't. I enjoy those calls, actually, because it gives me a chance to explain to them why it's important. Well, I'll give you a good example. I had a, a call not too long ago, and it was on a heat pump, and the guy called and said, hey, 
this is the second TXV that has gone bad on this outdoor unit. Now, the company out in Ferguson, where I'm at, we sell Goodman and Mitsubishi. So I support Goodman and Mitsubishi. So he said, these Goodman TXVs, this is the second one I found bad, and something's going on with the valves. I'm like, mm, Goodman's been using that same valve. It's a Parker valve for a long time. They've not changed that valve. And I said, you've got something else going on. I said, when you go out to that job, take a manometer with you. So he gets out to the job and he starts telling me that this valve is bad. I know the valve is bad. And I said, well, you changed it one time. Did you change the dryer? He said, nope, I didn't change the dryer. And I said, why not? He said, nah, I didn't think it needed to be changed. It was new enough. I thought it was still in good shape. I was like, okay, anytime you open that system, you really need to be changing the dryer. So he just kept going. I've been doing this five years. I know what a bad TXV is like. And I'm like, okay. I said, if you really think the valve is bad, change it. Change it, but make sure you change the valve. Now, when you've got this thing open, I want you to close the valves on the outdoor unit. I want you to blow nitrogen through the suction side, through the coil, back out of your liquid line. Because I had it on Goodman's, the valves or the dryers are in the outdoor unit. So I said, when you cut that dryer out, just leave it open for the time being. But I want you to cut the liquid line outside. So when that line is open, you can blow the nitrogen through it. And then I want you to do the same thing on the true suction line, blow nitrogen through the unit. Like I said, he kept giving me this. I've been doing this five years. I know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, all right. So then his owner called me and said, I heard my guy was giving you a hard time. I said, yeah, he was, but that's all right. I said, I think you have an oil problem from lack of airflow. He's like, what makes you think that? And I'm like, because that's what it sounded like to me. So I got a text the next day from his boss and say, hey, we got oil. What should we do? Where they blew out the lines like I asked them to do. So the tech installs the valve and then the branch manager calls me. He said, well, I talked to him and asked him if he learned anything from this. He said, yeah, I learned I changed that valve two times for no reason because the airflow was never set up. Those are calls I like, though. Yeah, I mean, that's a great learning experience for them. There's guys that do tech support that like to do tech support that are doing my role. There's guys that are doing my role that like to do just phone calls. Then there's guys that do my role that like to do training. I actually prefer to do them both. I actually like doing them both. Shifting the topic a little bit here, everybody talks about artificial intelligence. Oh, my God. Yeah. I want to tell you what artificial intelligence said about you. Uh-oh. I just said, what is Ralph Wolf in the HVAC field known for? You ready? Yeah. I guess you got to be ready. Here are some specific things. His expertise in system evacuation. Really? He is considered a leading authority in the field. We just talked about that. I mean, you just riffed on that. His commitment to education. He's passionate about sharing his knowledge with others. Holy cow. That's everything that we just walked up to right here. His ability to communicate complex technical information in a clear and concise way. That leads to the humbling effect that you have on some people that change the perspective. And then finally, his sense of humor. So I think we got to at least inject some more humor into this, Ralph. Holy cow. What do you think? AI said all this about- AI said all that. I can send it right to you. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. You know what? At the DSG conference a couple months ago, Mitch Bishy has their own podcast. 
So I'm going to plug them here if you don't mind. Yeah, please. It's a Metus, M-E-T-U-S, HVAC podcast. So Mitsubishi has their own podcast, and it's really a great podcast to listen to if you are doing Mitsubishi equipment. Anyway, we were at the DSG conference, and the training manager over the United States, he come over to me and he said, just pick a topic, any topic. And I'm like, uh, he didn't tell me what it was for. He just said, pick a topic. And I was like, all right, so vacuums. Because that was the first thing that came to my mind. So he's like, okay, be over at the table, and in 15 minutes, we're going to do a podcast on vacuums. I was like, really? Out of this whole topics that I could have picked, I picked vacuums. So I guess that's where that comes from. But I don't know about all the rest of that stuff. <laughs> I think you're selling yourself short a little bit there. Oh, I tell plenty of jokes in class, but I tell the guys, and it's like, look, don't you be telling HR because I don't want a filing cabinet in their office with a bunch of files. The Ralph Wolf Honorary Filing Cabinet with a cast plaque on it. <laughs> <laughs> I have taken at the RTFM that we always say, and in class I have to be politically correct, and so it's read the fantastic manual, right? I get that from Brian Orr because he's got to be politically correct as well. So I do. I have that on my whiteboard. And I tell the guys in class, if you don't get anything else out of this class, you'll at least have my phone number. You'll have mylinkdrive.com and you'll have RTFM. You'll know what that means. And like, what does that even mean? It means read the fantastic manual. And I can see them all smile because they know what I wanted to say. But you probably got a lot of stories that you could tell probably from the field work and then also from the classroom. But let's talk about in the field, just some kind of story that rises to the top in your experience in the field. Depends on what kind of subject matter you want to talk about, Bill. I've been in some interesting places and seen some interesting people. And those I'd rather not get into on here. All right. We're a clean podcast there, Bill. Yeah, we are. But I will tell you, probably one of the funniest ones was that I actually went to a service call. It was early on in my career. Maybe I was doing a maintenance and I come upstairs and I'm like, I'm yelling for the lady. And she's like, I'm in here. And I'm like, where? She was in the bathroom. She was taking a bath. And it turned out that she was a nudist and she didn't care that I went in the bathroom while she was taking a bath. And I was like, I'm not going in there. No, we're nudists. It's okay. I'm like, well, I just don't want to see that. That's probably the funniest one that's happened to me. Now I've had some other, but can't talk about those. How about the most technically challenging project you worked on? At the time, I was doing one and looking back on it now. So when you send me the invite and we type in, what is that? Your topic sentence. The topic sentence. So this falls under that topic sentence. So I forget the exact scenario. It was a gas furnace, but I can't remember. It was doing cooling. Anyway, there was a filter hidden in the ductwork that nobody knew was there. And I forget the exact scenario, what was going on with the system, because it's been so long ago, but there was a filter that was hidden that nobody knew was there. And there was a couple people go out and nobody knew what it was. So they sent the service manager out and he's the one that found the dirty filter had been in the same system for three years. And had I would have known then what I know now, he would have never had to go out there. So it just goes back to just because I always use during the summertime. Yeah, there's 10 trucks. You can go out to any city 
and there's always 10 heat and air trucks at the intersection. And the homeowners think because their fans are lettered, whatever, the tech that comes out to their house is going to be fully qualified to do the job. There's a lot of time we kind of use the homeowners as guinea pigs to learn. You learn on the job, and I know you can't come out of the step right in the truck and know everything. You have to blow enough stuff up and let the smoke out of many different things to actually gain the experience that you need to gain. That just depends on the tech. So that dirty filter experience that to me speaks of don't assume anything. Don't assume anything. And that unit was probably way, 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 way overcharged. Because they were trying to make up for it. Because they were trying to make up for it. And that was with 22. So had that would have been 410, it would have been a whole different story. That's funny. I've had a couple similar things to that myself over the years. Don't assume everything is normal. I actually bought a house one time that had a Honeywell electronic air cleaner in it. And the homeowner had been washing those cells religiously. They were clean as a whistle. But I know it wasn't. If anybody's no, worked on a Honeywell electronic air cleaner, you know what else is in there, and that's called pre-filters. Yep. <laughs> and those things looked like they had shoved seven cats down there and shredded them in front of the pre-filters. Those things, they worked great, but yeah, I'm just like, nah, give me April air. Just give me April air. I'll be good. So let's talk real quick, Ralph, about the refrigerant transition we're facing. I mean, you and I have already been in our careers, we've been through one refrigerant transition already going from 22 to 410. And now we're going from 410 into the next world of A2Ls, lower GWP refrigerants. And this time we got a new classification of flammability. And what challenges are you seeing the industry having with that when you're talking to technicians out there on a regular basis? Well, you know what all the techs think. We're all going to blow up? Is that? We're all going to blow up. I saw a meme that somebody put up, and I sent it to Jason Objutes and asked him if it was him that did that. So there was an air conditioner, and a guy in firefighting gear was in between the air conditioner and the wall. And then there was a bubble caption that said, this is fake news. So I sent it to Jason and asked Jason, hey, did you make this meme? Because I knew, he said, no, I didn't, but the guy I worked with did. But yeah. The biggest obstacle is going to get the guys to understand that they're already working with R32. They just don't know it with 410. And then so it's not going to be as big a deal as what they think it's going to be. Of course, we're going to have to retool some stuff and stuff like that. But if you can just get the tech to understand that it's not going to be an explosion. You're already driving A2Ls in your vehicle. You just don't know it. They have been in every new vehicle for what, probably the past six, seven years? Right. It's already there. You just don't know it's there. What do you see as any new practices that people need to use or they just need to pay attention to the practices they should have been doing all along? What are your thoughts on that? That last statement you just made, they just need to pay attention to what they should have been doing already. And they're going to have to start reading the manual and make sure that they're installing this stuff correctly. There's that fantastic manual again. Yeah. I had a guy call me yesterday and said, hey, man, my Rolex keeps tripping. And we even changed it and it's still tripping. I said, I bet that little plate that that rollout sets on is really hot, isn't it? He said, yeah. And I said, the flames look good, don't they? He said, yeah. And I said, what do you think the problem could be? I don't know. That's why I'm calling you. And I said, you got an airflow problem. And he said, no, I, I got good air. I said, what's your static? He said, his return stack was a 0.9. I 
just on his return. And I was like, mm, you got a problem with your airflow. And then his supply was like a 0.16. I was like, it's low because your supply or your return static is so high. And then come to find out, he was still having a problem. He took his returns off. He was still having a problem. And I said, where are you checking your supply static? And he's like, oh, I'm checking it after the coil. I said, in the plenum? He said, well, yeah. And I said, you're checking the wrong place, sir. I said, you need to pull that limit out because pull the limit out, stick your probe in there and see what you get. He never called back. So I don't know. I'm hoping that he found a dirty coil or something. Yeah, that's if he had a 0.6 after the coil, that's some slightly restricted duct work there. No, it was 0.16, but the kicker was a 0.9 on this return. And I had to explain to these guys, because we always say we want our system to be a 0.5. Well, that's great, as long as your return static's not a 0.42. Yeah, it'd be nice to have that. And some of this new equipment, now that rule is changing because the ratings on the new equipment. It's all going to have to be at a 0.5. They're all tested at 0.5. Yeah. Well, we've got ratings now. What I don't know, the highest one I think I've seen now is up to a 1.0 external, rated external static. Now, should it run at that? No. Yeah. For the motor, the motor's rated for a 0.1 or a 1.0 static. But the system, we want to be at a 0.5 for a total static. Yeah. It would be nice for sure. When they call me and say if they're static, if it's a 0.6, a 0.7, I'm still up there on the 0.7. I like to get them to go down. Are you seeing anybody applying different tools to measure airflow in the field, like the true flow grid or anything like that? Eric, (laughs) I can't get my guys to have a manometer. But there are guys that I talk to, and there are some really sharp guys that I do talk to, and they use a hood and stuff like that. Yeah, there's a lot of different ways to measure that. Right. But like I said, for the most part, if I can just get them to have a manometer, man. That's at least a start right there. Yeah. Step in the right direction. It's the gateway drug to better diagnostics. It is. And I tell the guys, I said, once you have a manometer in your hand and you start using it correctly, your boss is going to be mad at you because you guys have put in systems and the ductwork hadn't been good. And now you're going to the customer and And that's a tough one to try to explain to a customer that, hey, we need to do some changes to your ductwork when you put the system in two years ago. Yeah, boss, heck, I was mad at myself. Yeah. That's one of those where you see that meme of the guy sleeping in bed at night going, what did I screw up today? Or that job I did three years ago has crazy high static pressure and I just tested it. How am I going to fix this? Or that guy and that girl walking down the street and he's got his head turned. And then I bet he's thinking about a woman. Uh, What was the static of that job I was on? (laughs) Or he's thinking about E2L. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got to get me a scuba mask so I can breathe. Yeah. No. I think a lot of guys are unnecessarily freaking out. I would tend to agree with you. But like with 410A, we had a lot of concerns about higher pressures and things like that because the pressures are different. But realistically the equipment's designed to handle that so so you want to hear a funny story about 410a sure the first 410 unit that i walked up on as a young lad i told the homeowner i said i'm not qualified to work on that you're gonna have to call somebody else and walked away from it because i just didn't know so it goes to show you how far we all come in our career but yeah i told that that homeowner i don't know anything about that you're gonna have at least i was honest that goes back to one of the things that I've discovered 
pretty early on in my career was that I really shouldn't pay attention to the type of refrigerant and the pressures. I should more pay attention to getting the right temperatures and paying attention to that saturation temperature coming off the PT chart, whatever that is. And that changed the way I looked at switching refrigerants. If they'll just come to class and just brush up on, you don't even really have to come to class. There's enough information on the internet where they should be able to make a smooth transition. But you got to be willing to admit that that 30 years of time in the trade doesn't always equate out to 30 years of knowledge. So that's a great, so my opening statement was, I've got 30 years in the trade, but I've only had 16 years experience. How did you calculate that number? I'm curious. Where do you make the cutoff? So I got one year experience 14 times. It wasn't until I started looking back and was like, how does this stuff actually work? When I said that, I was like, that's when I really started gaining the experience. So I know guys that have been in the field for 50 years, and they got two years experience. They just keep doing it over and over and over again. Same thing over and over again. And you know what they say about that, right? It's insanity. It's insanity. Definition of insanity, yeah. We must have all been there because we all jumped on that immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you just keep doing the same thing over and over again, and it's just insanity. I may have beat my head off that wall once or twice. <laughs> I mean, I have too. And if everybody was honest with themselves, we all would. There's not one of us perfect. We call them super techs. We tell them this or we tell them that. And when I first started doing YouTube, I would get a lot of people, why are you showing them homeowners how to do this stuff? And I'm like, I'm not showing anybody anything they can already access on the internet. Yeah, but you're just making it so easy. And I'm like, I don't really care what you think. Because those guys, they think that they're super techs. And I'm like, I didn't come out of the womb with a set of gauges in one hand and a meter in the other. Your mother would have been mad at you if you did. Yeah, she would have. But we all had to take the baby steps to start walking. And then we got to walk to run. We all got to start somewhere. For sure. So we talked about this in our pre-show, but we were going to ask you for your closing thoughts. Oh, man, don't make me do that. <laughs> All right, we won't do that. And is there a reason why you don't share closing thoughts? No, you know, even when me and Zach did the podcast together, I never knew what to say at the end of the podcast. That's a good way to leave it. We'll just leave it open because you'll be back. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Sounds good, man. Yeah. Thanks, Ralph. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this episode of the Building HVAC Science Podcast where our guest, Ralph Wolf talked about his HVAC Odyssey, lessons, laughs, and legacies. I also host the ResTalk podcast, R-E-S-T-A-L-K, where you can learn more about the rapidly expanding world of home energy ratings and peripheral topics. If you're interested in becoming more knowledgeable about what we're doing here, have a question, etc., drop a line to marketing at truetechtools.com. And as a disclaimer, some of the topics we discuss require technical training for proper interpretation or safe execution. So if you're a trained pro, you can go right ahead. If you're not, please consult and hire a pro. The Building HVAC Science Podcast is a production of True Tech Tools Limited. Full disclosure, I'm a co-owner of True Tech. And the opinions voiced are those of my guests, my co-host, or myself, depending on who is speaking, of course. And if you're in the market for tools or test instruments mentioned in our podcast, take a look at truetechtools.com, T-R-U-T-E-C-H-T-O-O-L-S.com. And you can use the offer code HVACBS for a nice discount.
I want to thank you for listening to this podcast and following us on Building HVAC Science. And if you're not subscribed, please consider doing so. We have some great episodes coming up on energy efficiency, on the five factors of good building, and the state of the residential HVAC business, and also one on the HVAC Symposium, a wrap-up, a recap that Eric and I are going to do shortly, and also our DIY load calculations, even possible, that's coming up in March. So thanks again for listening. We hope this content is informative and useful to you. I heard a lot of great feedback, just kind of made my head swell with all the great stuff that we're hearing back from people, especially in person at the HVAC R Symposium, which by the way, you can still sign up get tickets for the online, the recorded version. It's a really terrific value. All the sessions, $26. That's two and a half days of sessions. I don't know how many hours are in there because there's multiple things going on at once. So probably a hundred hours at least of sessions that you can watch and learn from for $26 total. Hopefully you take advantage of that. And we thank you for listening to this podcast and hope you have you back next time listening to Building HVAC Science. Take care.